Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Ray Wong. Ray is the Chief Executive Officer of the Silicon Valley-based Constellation Research. He's also the co-host of Disrupt TV, a weekly enterprise tech leadership webcast that averages 50,000 views per episode. He also blogs at raywong.org. His latest book is Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in an Age of Digital Giants. It's a terrific read that I certainly recommend everyone pick up. And I look forward to digging into some of the details of what's covered in this. But uh, with that, Ray, it's so nice to see you. Thank you so much for joining me on Technovation today. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a show I've been admiring for years. I'm so glad to be on it. And uh, thank you for hosting. Well, you're, very, you're very kind to say it. I've certainly been looking forward to it as well. Well, Ray, um, you know, the, the past year and a half or so <clears throat> that we've been uh, suffering through the COVID crisis, the quarantine, all these new ways of working, it can certainly be argued that one of the key ingredients that has separated all things being equal, separated those companies that were more resilient than others is the extent to which they had made a commitment prior to all of this to digital transformation. Uh, a concept, of course, there are so many things that are underneath that rubric. Um, it's a broad umbrella indeed. But I know that as somebody who is a very early proponent of digital transformation, as I was as well, um, you are now drawing the conclusion that it's not enough. Digital transformation alone is not enough. Talk a bit about why that is and what then comes next. Uh, what, what needs to be included beyond that uh, in order for companies to think a bit uh, more broadly about where they're headed? So when you and I were talking about digital transformation, maybe like eight to 10 years ago, uh, all those elements that took us here, those were differentiating factors in the marketplace. What we determined that occurred over the last 14 months is we accelerated digital transformation by five years and we're all in the same playing field. Digital transformation is, is not like a nice to have, it's a requirement. Uh, and if you're not doing that, you're kind of in trouble. And what we discovered over the last 14 to 15 months was that people thought digital transformation was, hey, let's get a digital channel. We're off the fax machine. We're now mobile, right? Uh, let's get a digital channel where we can order on the internet, right? No, those were table stakes, right? That's just the channel. You didn't even scratch the surface on business model or even monetization model, right? So digital transformation requires not just the channels, the business models, the monetization model, the technology and the culture on the back end, right? This is something that has to be inside every executive's playbook just to survive operations. Now, when we talk to the early adopters of digital transformation, which so many of your guests are, when I look at that roster, I'm just like, this is awesome. Like this is like the world-class list of digital transformation experts in one spot. When you talk to them, you say, hey, how are you doing with the efforts? Privately, they will say, look, you know, we've encountered some you know, challenges. And in some of those challenges, we've, we've seen that maybe it's culture, maybe it's investment dollars, maybe it's something else. Now we started to catalog all those different challenges and realize that this had nothing to do with the digital transformation efforts. What changed? What changed is a big fundamental shift in the landscape of how companies are being funded as startups. And so let's take a step back and talk about what's happening in the marketplace. If you are not returning 15% to an institutional investor, you are going backwards because the U.S. dollar is being devalued at a rate where 15% means you stay even. 
So the hunt for yield, the quest for yield, the return and the, you know, the push on EBITDA is happening. So cash cow companies who are generating awesome profits are being stripped of those profits in mergers, acquisitions, divestitures, and well, dividends and buybacks and divestitures are all coming because the same investors betting on these awesome companies are taking that cash and betting on a startup that's going to get 40 to 50% returns. And so the companies, just when they need that money to do innovation and beat back digital giants, that money is being taken away to fund those digital giants who are going to collapse and destroy the same value chain and ecosystem that these companies are playing in today. So their investors are betting against them and hedging. And that's the first part you have to realize that's going on. And whether it's consciously or unconsciously, the result is still the same. The second piece, the reason digital transformation is enough is those digital giants are funded to operate in a different way. They're designed to be monopolies on day one. And when we look at the history of companies, right? I mean, if you look at, you know, what's, what's the different, you know, what does Airbus and Boeing do, right? They sell planes, right? What does Pepsi and Coke do? They sell fizzy water that sometimes causes, you know, health problems. <laughs> what does, you know, GM and Ford do? They compete head on, right, in the automobile market. Well, those companies took 40 to 50 years to become duopolies. What's happening now in the marketplace is it takes less than 10 years to become a duopoly or even a monopoly. Take Google, take Amazon, take Facebook, and you see that level of competition and that level of scale unseen before in the history of industry. Yeah, it's really remarkable. I, I uh, One of the statistics that I find so compelling is the duration of uh, time that the average company in the S&P 500 back in the late 50s, early 60s, it was nearly 60 years, and now it's closer to 15. And both an example of companies that have not been able to change rapidly enough to, uh, to continue to compete, but also, as you point out, remarkable scaling of other organizations that are taking the place of the old stalwarts at the same time. And so uh, just tremendous opportunities, just as there's a, a perilous conclusions for those organizations that are unwilling to change. No, I was going to say, that's a great study from a UPenn economist. I remember seeing that as well. That's a yeah. great stat. We've gone from 60 years to 11 years, uh, you know, to a point where we're going to be down to 11 years, right? By the time we get to 2050. Mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Yeah, just, just remarkable just to what, what that suggests about the business environment and the need to make change a core competence in many ways. Uh, talk a bit about what you have seen uh, for, for older organizations, those born before the digital age, this is a daunting time. And, and the message you've already begun to convey here, and certainly what you offer in greater depth in your book, is, is indeed an increasingly daunting one for those same organizations as well. What can those organizations born before the digital age do in order to better compete during this age? Yeah, so we've studied how different organizations can build tiger teams or separate units or how they can build consortiums. And we realized that those models all had certain advantages and a lot of disadvantages. Uh, and we realized that the, the biggest challenge there was really the way you actually design that startup, because we're in a model where you're going to build a digital giant, you're either going to partner and organize to compete against a digital giant, or you're going to perish, right? And I know those sound like start choices and more deliberate for dramatic, you know, from dramatic perspective. But let's talk about the partner aspect. Let's say you were going to go head on, you know, against Amazon, or you're going to build a coalition to, you know, go after a 
place like Smart Buildings, right? Smart Buildings is a fun one. There are three major players in Smart Buildings. We'll just name them out for fun. CB Richard Ellis, Jones, Jones Lang LaSalle, right? Cushman Wakefield. They're, they're in the business of actually managing large swaths of corporate real estate. And if any one of those CEOs said, look, we're going to spend $150 million to build Smart Buildings, we'd be like, yeah, great. Good luck. It's a $2 billion, $3 billion project. That's not even funded. But the market would be like, that's amazing. You're getting to smart buildings. You're going to do dynamic pricing per square feet uh, or meter. You're going to you know, renegotiate power purchase agreements. You're going to improve your green and sustainability efforts, right? You're going to have the ability you know, to do mass personalization at scale and ad networks inside your building, right? So, okay, great, great benefits being able to pull that off. Problem is, I'll be polite. None of those companies have the technology or the talent or the teams that could actually pull that off. And we know that. Uh, and, and that's okay. They'd hire a lot of consultants. They'd bring folks in, you know, they go do it. It would take them four or five years. And at the end of the five years, I'll be honest, most of those projects would fail. Right? I hope they succeed. I hope they do a wonderful job. They're wonderful people over there, but let's go change the calculus. Let's, let's make it work. Um, what happens if we build a separate startup, put $150 million into this? It's a joint venture startup. Uh, one of those entities would have dual class structure, uh, meaning that they have 10 votes to one. And, you know, and so they might own 11% of the company, but have a majority voting rights. Fine. That, that's, that's wonderful. We'll get to that kind of scenario. Um, and what we really want to do is get to a point where you take a cloud vendor like a Google or an Amazon or Microsoft and pair them up with the real estate venture here. Now, how do we do this? Well, Google Ventures puts 150 million down. CB Richard Ellis puts 150 million. We have 300 million. Now we're on our way. This actually looks like it's going to succeed. But wait, we still need talent. So let's go get like an Accenture or IBM or Deloitte or you know Bain Capital to put you know another 50 million in uh, and have Bain Consulting come in. Okay, do that as well. We've now raised 350 million dollars. Now we got the talent. Uh, we've got the ability to actually have the right level of funding, but we still have to do something more. We need to engage the ecosystem to make this successful because digital giants are designed to be monopolies on day one. And so here's how we do it. We go to every single supplier, in this case, elevator manufacturers like Thyssen, Krepp and Otis, uh, electrical companies like Schneider Electric, control systems like Johnson uh, Controls and Honeywell. Put in 10 million, we'll give you 1% of the company. Now we've raised half a billion dollars to compete in this market. And we're now worth what? We're worth 2 billion, maybe 3 billion on day one on that valuation. What happens in the marketplace on day one? Well, a cap table raid will occur. Anyone who's not part of this coalition, their stock's going to drop as institutional investors pull out and come to us. On day two, the top tech talent is coming over. The top business talent is coming over. Anybody who wants to have a shot at playing in this market, we're going to get a great talent pool because we got stock options that are going to be crazy. Uh, we've got the incentives. We've got the talent. Now we're, now we're talking. What happens on day three? Well, Cushman Wakefield and Jones Lang LaSalle, they're not going to sit by on their you know, wait. Well, we chose Google. Okay. They choose Microsoft. They form their alliance in a big partnership. They make, they raise $500 million to go do this. Fine. They raise more money than we did. Um, and then, you know, they choose Accenture because we chose IBM. Fine. Okay, great. When they go to the rest of the ecosystem and ask them for money, those guys don't have $10 million for them. In fact, those guys are only betting on the second player just in case we fail. And so they'll give them maybe half a million to a million dollars. So what happened on day one? Well, in the first week, we have first mover advantage. We'll probably get 52% of the market share. They'll probably get 20% of the market share. And guess what? The tech, the talent, the innovation, the IP, and that whole total addressable market just vanished overnight in a week, maybe a month. <laughs> so what do we have? We have duopoly on day one. We actually see 
50 markets with 100 players like this where industries collapse against data value chains in what we call data-driven digital networks. These are the 100-year platforms. These dominant platforms and the digital giants are what's going to be running a lot of industries over the next 10 to 15 years. That's really interesting. So, so organizations really need to think about the ecosystem that they are building together. They need to think about unusual bedfellows from a partnership perspective in order to do new things. And it sounds, I mean, you're also emphasizing that older organizations need to bring in new blood, both through partnership, but also perhaps in establishing new entities that will allow them to bring in a new kind of employee into the fold uh, that would be difficult to do so in the traditional part of their businesses as well. Is that fair, Ray? Peter, you're completely right. The existing entities don't work. We looked at Walmart trying to bring Jet in or create Walmart labs or trying to do all this. One day they finally realized that, wait, we're not competing against Amazon. We're competing against all of Amazon. And that really opened up their eyes. You saw them trying to buy an ad network by buying TikTok. You saw them suddenly roll out Walmart Plus, which basically means, hey, look, we realize we have 200 million shoppers every week that are members that we should be going and building those membership networks so we can actually have our own internal ad network because the cookie apocalypse is here and you can't go after third-party data. It's really about first-party data and communities. And that's kind of driving that future, right? So, so we see you know, companies starting to realize that they have to create these new joint ventures. You see Ford and Google partnering up up and GM and Microsoft partnering up to think about how they reimagine their business. And in some cases, think about autonomous vehicles. Yeah, it's a, it's a great points all. You, you mentioned this, uh, and I wanted to just peel back the onion a little bit further on this concept of data-driven digital networks. Um, in many ways, what you're describing at the heart of that is, uh, is this, this digital network that you're referring to. Talk a little bit more about what you mean by that, as you, I know, uh, have established in your book, is that is a, an enormous differentiator. Uh, the most successful companies um, have leveraged those and leveraged them successfully. Talk a bit more about the ingredients of that, please. Yeah, it's really important. These data-driven digital networks or DDDNs are basically the platforms behind these digital giants. And if you're an existing, if you're building a brand new digital giant from scratch, you basically have to have five elements. And, and this is what's not in the book. So we'll pull this out because we basically, you write the book and then you end up saying, hey, wait, if we could simplify this book again, how would you do it, right? You have a whole year to think about it. You know how this process works. Exactly. And so we came down to five steps. The first one is you have to disintermediate customer account control, right? You basically have to stick yourself in between. If you're basically, um, if you're an intermediary and you're not adding value, you're, you're out of the game. If you're an intermediary and you're actually discerning a customer account control, you're now a digital giant. The second part is you're actually competing for data supremacy. And we'll talk about a little bit about that. I'll use an example to pull this all together. The third one is we're building the biggest network that's possible. And the fourth piece is really thinking about how we create new digital monetization models. And then the last piece is you got to have a long-term mindset. So let's take a classic example. One of my favorites, the digital transformation winner of our time was really Domino's Pizza. I mean, let's be honest, these guys kicked butt, right? They went from a $3 stock to, good God, like $300, right? Better returns than most tech companies between 2010 and 2019. So, so these folks have won, right? You can order pizza on Alexa. You can do it on a mobile device, right? They can place the order. They tell you the status of the order. Order's been placed. The pizza's in the oven. We're 10 minutes away. We're five minutes away. And, and you know, here's your pizza. And by the way, take a picture of that pizza and run it through the AI engine. We'll tell you how good our franchisee was, right? And, and that, that's brilliant, right? They've won the battle for digital transformation. But let's be honest. You might order pizza maybe once a month 
once every two weeks from Domino's. That frequency is actually pretty low compared to food delivery apps, which you might order two to three times a week, right? So a Deliveroo or a Swiggy or a Gojack, if you're outside in the international areas, if you're in the US, you know, uh, Postmates or Uber Eats or DoorDash, right? You might order three or four times a week from these places. What do they do? The small businesses who couldn't do delivery handed over their customers, their customer data, the payment information, and their preferences, which got aggregated. So that's the first part, customer account control disintermediation, right? They just did that. So, so now the biggest network has just been formed. We've got millions of customers on any one of these food delivery apps. And more importantly, they're taking the data and saying, hey, Peter, in your zip code, more people like Thai food than Italian, right? Okay, so we probably should find more Thai restaurants. Or maybe if there's no Thai restaurant, let's go build a ghost kitchen. In fact, we don't need these restaurants. They've given us their preferences, the frequencies. We can actually take them out, build a ghost kitchen, and supply the whole entire region with our folks streamline delivery and actually use that data to set pricing and completely set preferences and test out new markets. Oh, wait, they just won on data supremacy. And then they're going to do digital monetization. They're not just making money on deliveries. They're going to make money on the search and the ad placement and the offers and the loyalty programs on the back end for filling that loop. And at the end, they're going to have their own closed loop digital ad network. And then they're going to do reviews. They're going to continue to build that community. Suddenly that big network is going to grow from millions to tens of millions to maybe hundreds of millions. Okay, that's great. And guess what? They can lose $100 million and nobody's going to blink an eye because they've been funded for long-term growth, right? They don't have to worry about the margins like Domino's has. Now, if you're a Domino's and you're facing this dilemma, Domino's, please listen because you never pick up the phone when I call. I was going to say, Domino's, please listen, right? Imagine if you do delivered by Domino's and help all the small businesses around you that are not pizza chains, right? And give them the ability to leverage your infrastructure, your paid for drivers, your digital transformation investments. You could be the world's biggest food delivery service and along deliver pizzas once every two weeks. That is the game. Now, can you get Domino's to think like that? They've got the culture. I think they could pull it off. Will they listen to a folk, someone like me? I don't know. We'll find out. We'll see if they hear this webcast. And call. <laughs> but you get the idea, right? But they're getting their butt kicked by food delivery apps in the long run. And you see that in markets like India where Swiggies build ghost kitchens. Will you need Domino's? No, you're going to order pizza from you know this thing that looks like an Italian pizza chain. Though It's all operated by the same ghost kitchen, right? For those who people know ghost kitchens, they're basically large facilities that put up storefronts of like 15 to 20 different types of genres. It's all being cooked and created in the same place and then ultimately delivered out, but they look like they're separate restaurants. Interesting example. I really appreciate you you uh, kind of unwinding that a little bit further. Very interesting indeed. And especially the five factors that you, you described as the points of differentiation. You've also talked about... Uh, Ray, the uh, extreme consolidation that's changing the global business landscape. Um, you, you noted that as this happens, companies need to understand where they fit in the evolving supply chain. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah. So the, the challenge is if, if you're an existing business and you're trying to get into this space, you have to realize that the TAM is different, right? Because industries are collapsing. And what I mean, let's take a classic one that's relevant right now, comms, media, entertainment, telecom, right? And technology. 
right? It's the same business at the end of the day, right? You're selling digital content. It's got to be streamed through a distribution channel. You have a technology platform that people engage with you on, whether it's a mobile device, internet, or set-top box, right? Or game console. Um, and you know what? You're building a network of customers, right? So same space, right? So honestly, they're in the same business. Now, we saw AT&T and Verizon exit the content part of the business to focus on building infrastructure. And I'm sitting here like, what the heck are these companies doing? Like, why the heck would you do that? And I realized they can't compete in the global content game. They're not capitalized to do that and fund a 5G rollout. So what they've decided is say, hey, look, we're going to exit this business, cut our losses, and we'll let other people figure that out. But Amazon, on the other hand, is doing the whole thing, right? They've got the whole delivery of comms, media, entertainment, and technology all in one because they've got a distribution platform through Amazon.com. You could be an Amazon Prime member in this space. And so suddenly Netflix, Disney, and Amazon are delivering streaming services at scale around the world, spending $13 billion to $17 billion a year on content. Amazon buying MGM for like $8 billion, right? Round it up. But the point being is... They can play in the game because they got scale. And now we're in a different part of this equation. So if you're just building infrastructure as a telco, what are you relegated to? Right? That's a very, very tough position, but you don't have the choice because investors only see you for a certain set of returns and they won't give you the money or capital to go after this venture hard. Disney, on the other hand, managed to pivot out of their amusement park and in-person issue when you're all staying at home to be able to get the content out and delivered as a streaming company overnight. And Disney Plus is in a great position because they're now pushing content around the world and monetizing that same content at massive scale. Yeah, very interesting. You know, what you describe is the reality of business, but you, what you're describing isn't necessarily what I don't, I, I don't, I don't hear in your descriptions necessarily like what, what's right for society. Um, and I wonder to what extent do you think, uh, you know, better regulations or what role does the government play in order to level the playing field to, to some extent? As you describe these emerging duopolies in so many different spaces, what you're also describing is the crowding out of other opportunities and the inability because other, you know, some companies have become winners, the inability for others to truly compete with them. So what role do you see government playing in what you've described? Well, first of all, let's be upfront. I'm a free market capitalist. But in order to have free and fair markets, you need to make sure that competition exists, consumer benefits are out there, and that the level of innovation continues, and that prices and the value to customers are continuing to go down. Right, right now, the digital giants, we are at the dawn of digital giants and at the rise of digital giants. We're in between those two areas. Are you getting benefits? Totally, right? You get you know, free translation service, a mapping service that works. You don't pay for email. You can connect to the internet for little cost. You're getting awesome levels of content creation, right? You're able to connect with your friends and communicate in ways you never would have thought of. But when that ends, you definitely need regulation. And sometimes you want to put that regulation in advance. And that's got to be done with a cost-benefit analysis because suddenly I don't have choices. If suddenly competitors with great ideas are being shut out of markets, if suddenly that stream of innovation goes away, if suddenly societal good and public good is gone, right? Which is too late, right? So you got to put the right regulations in. 
but you can't do it with the pretense of I'm doing this because I'm going to run for higher office in the future, which is what's going on right now. That doesn't make sense, right? I know it's populist. It's great to go do that, but we need that happy medium and that cost benefit analysis to say, look, a company over a trillion dollars in market cap that has more than a hundred million users in their network, right? Here's the behavior we expect. Their network needs to be open. Kind of like when we were looking at telecom, like, you know, carriers can do number portability, right? You can switch between the three carriers at ease, right? So there's no lock-in, right? Um, there are a couple of things we can do. We can talk about personal data being a property, right? So now you have to seek consent, right? It's because you're getting a free service because the data is the product and you're the product. Well, let's change that equation and say you need permission and consent for that. So you might pay for that service. You might get paid to be using the service because they want your data. Now we have a market for that data, but it's a property, right? Governed by all 50 states, right? Governed by European law, right? And then the other piece is the fact that you know when you have that type of data and that information you also have to have the right to be disconnected right and that takes away that lock-in and also protects your personal freedom and privacy which means like we still need to have cash you still need to be able to do something in a paper transaction you still need to do something in person just like we have accessibility for folks that might be disabled or have a you know have a certain type of access issue we also want to make sure that that right to be disconnected is available Right. So by putting those things in place and enforcing the existing antitrust laws that we have, that's enough. Right. We just need to be able to fund that antitrust thing. And so you saw recently five antitrust bills pop out last Friday, June 11th. Right. And, and they're addressing some of that, but not necessarily taking the cost benefit inside. So increasing merger acquisition fees. That's great. We need to fund the antitrust efforts. Totally makes sense. Um, you know, making sure that data portability is available makes tons of sense. But then when you're trying to restrict a company from competing and putting stuff in their own platform, the controls have to be a little bit more detailed. For example, is, our, is price going down, right? You got the situation in DC where someone's like, oh my God, we need to sue Amazon because all the prices are lower. Like, uh, I don't know about that one, right? That doesn't make any sense. Because of Amazon, all the prices are lower. They want the first right of refusal to have the lowest price. That's a good thing. <laughs> That's not a bad thing, right? So that breaks, you know, that breaks the laughability test, right? That, that doesn't work, right? But if Amazon was actually forcing everything to be more expensive, now we have a case and that fits within the existing antitrust laws. So Clayton Act, Sherman Act, all those things are still valid. I think people should definitely look at that. They should understand the existing laws before we add new regulation. That's my free market side. Uh, but my most important part is the fact that if we're getting those benefits to society, make sure we capture all those benefits, right? Low cost to access the internet, right? The ability to connect people, like streamlined financial systems, right? The ability to get to social networks and entertainment at scale. I mean, this, this is an amazing period we're living in. We don't want to curtail those innovations, but we also want to make sure new competitors have a fair shot. You know, you, you, you offered some really interesting insights for what like the dominoes, or I think it was the JLL among the real estate companies that you, you referenced in your, in your fictional example, what they might do to better compete in this new age. Um, what are some examples of companies that are doing this? Again, older organizations that have taken the bull by the horns, recognizing the new, this new reality and, and changing in the right direction in order to create a more sustainable future for themselves. Um, and I'd be interested, you know, the extent to which you can offer any additional details as to the steps they undertook, uh, perhaps, you know, recounting up some of the things you've already mentioned, but going, going into some, some new directions where possible would love your thoughts on that as well, Ray. So 
I cannot tell you the specific companies because a good number of them are clients. Ah. But what I can tell you is the difference between the five steps that I told you is the addition of two more steps that actually have to happen. And that is the difference between the companies that are actually driving that change um, inside existing companies versus companies that are doing it um, you know, from scratch to be a digital giant. And this goes back to the first part we were talking about earlier which is really about how companies are set up to be successful. And the first part is really, we have to revisit what we call the life cycle of organizations. And what I mean by that, there's five phases when a company is actually being created. And that's the part that people haven't really spent time understanding. And I really, like if the next book, there's gonna be two more books I write. The next book I write is really about how actually people can jumpstart growth, right? And, and that's, that's really behind this uh, point that we're going to talk about. And the other one's really like a whole book on something different. Uh, I'll talk about that later. But the first part is like, when you start a company, it's about purpose, right? What is the mission? What are we going to build? Like, what's the most awesome idea we have? And that typically comes with a dynamic founder. That's the initial catalyst. People get excited about that dynamic founder. The second piece is we got to go bring on the best people we know. How do we attract and retain top talent? How do we become the best place to work? That's the metric. And how do we tap into our talent networks to get there? Then we go out and we have an offering. We deliver a minimum viable offering. We get that out the door, you know, and, you know, the metric is like, hey, how are we ranked in analyst reports, you know, out there? And of course, the category, the catalyst is really good design, thinking through that process, applying design thinking, applying, you know, the best, you know, most efficient types of, you know, software that you can think of and technologies and you adapt them. And then we go out and go after markets, right? How do we win top customers in every industry? How do we get to great customer satisfaction? How do we build a category king? That's the catalyst. And then we go public and then all we care about is profit per sale and revenue per employee and we get into that trap. And so the companies that are trying to get out of here have to do five things. They have to go back to purpose, team, offering, markets, and capital and revisit that so that they can be successful. So what's the turnaround catalyst? Owner operators, PE firms come in and say, hey, we're going to rebuild this thing. Like We're serious about this. We're not trying to load you up with debt. We're not trying to strip this company out. You know, we're, we're going to build something new. So you got an owner operator that's putting their money in that says, hey, we can transform this industry. How do we do that? Got to think bigger. We're bigger than the existing total addressable market or TAM. Then what we're going to use is the stock upside to be able to grow that next level entity, right? What's the right management folks? How do we retrain, reskill them? Who folks do we need to put in here that can actually accelerate that goal? What are the top 40 people we need inside the organization to make this happen? And then what do we have to do to actually get the other folks excited, rewarded along the way? And then what do we actually do with design? Well, hey, new technologies pop up, exponential technologies are that new catalyst. And we actually start building that. And the way you jumpstart growth is use iterative customer feedback, understand what customers need, anticipate those needs, apply those new technology capabilities there so that they can be successful. And then the fourth part comes into the, the ability to build what we call partner ecosystems, those trading networks that are out there. How do we actually build multi-sided platforms and networks so that we can use those data and insights so we can connect suppliers, customers, partners, uh, and even employees into that mix so that we can actually benefit and build that capability. And then the last piece is we're refreshing investment cycles. The cap table looks different. We're getting to a level of value exchange that's typically not there. And that's really what we want to do to build that out. That life cycle of organizations is the secret. The second, the last step, which makes it seven steps, if you're an existing organization, not the five to build a digital giant, is really your ability to think about those partner ecosystems. And the you know, corporate real estate example tells you how to build those ecosystems. You have to bring together, not a consortium, but a joint venture startup. You have to use 
CapEx dollars, not OpEx dollars. You have to be designed for IPO, not for a nonprofit organization trying to save costs, right? We're designed for growth. We're not designed for cost cutting, right? We're thinking about um, 10 to one voting rights, dual class structures intentionally. You need a benevolent dictator. If you end up with a consortium like the UN, nothing will get done, right? It's not uh, unintentional, right? Everybody has their needs and a commonwealth of self-interest isn't gonna get you there. You have to bet on the idea, invest like your investor, and then, You've got to spend 10% of your revenue and invest, which is what 10X, what companies do in digital giants. They invest 10X more than their competitors. You can't do it on your own, but if you bring together you know, a group of folks in a joint venture startup, you now have the ability to invest at the same levels those digital giants are investing in R&D and future growth. Very interesting. Right before we started the interview, you and I were just sort of catching up and we talked about culture and some of the lessons that you've learned uh, through the years about the role that it plays. And no doubt, of course, given the changes that you're describing that businesses need to undertake, a big ingredient here is a willingness to rethink culture, to change culture even in some fundamental ways. Uh, talk a bit about the role you believe that plays. You know, culture seems to be everything. I mean, we used to think you could fix it with technology. We used to think you could fix it with, you know, more streamlined processes. We used to think of all these things, but it really comes down to the ethos of a company. And, and you're right. You know, we were talking before we got on here really about what, what is it? What is in the background, the culture that actually makes a company, you know, fight for more, um, you know, do more for a customer. Think about, you know, their role in society, um, you know, create the elements for change, right? To break through, you know, we've done it this way for 50 years, right? Why would we change it, right? If it's not broke, why would you fix it? I mean, and, and there are reasons for that sometimes. Sometimes it's cultural. You, you do have to have those. But what we're seeing is emerging class of leaders that understand what we call dynamic leadership. And that's the ability to balance between responsiveness and being responsible. And you see that across all different spectrums in terms of companies act, right? So, uh, you know, um, there are different leadership styles that, that are popping up that are helping to change that culture. You know, one example is like, you know, how you make decisions, right? Some people love, you know, people make really big, bold decisions. They do it very rapidly, right? They make those proclamations and they go. Yeah, that, that's useful, especially when you're in a time of crisis, right? But other times you really need pensive leaders, people who are thoughtful, who think through the issue before, you know, they make a proclamation or statement or say, here's our direction, right? That, that's one example of that, right? And we've got 14 factors in dynamic leadership that people should look at. The second piece is a little bit different. Like, how do you build the culture of an organization? And it's almost a brand exercise. Like, your people need to reflect the brand and the mission and the purpose. And, you know, when you're in organizations, well, I, 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 I see the benevolent side of this. Like, in public sector, right, you have a mission to serve, right? In healthcare, you have a mission to serve, right? Um, and it's different. That spirit to serve, like, in even in, like, hospitality, right? You, you know what your mission is. Your, your job is to deliver an awesome experience. Your job is to deliver, you know, patient care, right? And, and make sure that someone, you know, has a better life, right? Your job is to improve citizen services, right? When you build that spirit inside organizations and reinforce that, right, from the bottom up, right? That's a very important activity. So the bottom-up activity needs to be as well invested as the top-down leadership by leading by example. That's hard to do, right? Most companies aren't incentivized to do that. We're incentivized for short-term gain for a few, as opposed to long-term gain for the viability of an organization. And to some extent, that's a part where we can try to address that going forward by improving 
um, shareholder and boardroom design and, and boardroom education about you know where you can actually build. I don't want to go as far to say it's stakeholder capitalism. I'm not sure I buy into that completely, but I think it's important um, for the mission and the viability of an organization, more like in the Jim Collins good to great kind of world, as opposed to, you know, the financial version of a stakeholder capitalism approach that to me seems more like, hey, look at what we've done instead of look at who we are. I wanted to close by asking you, you know, you are an entrepreneur yourself. Uh, nearly 11 years ago, you founded Constellation Research, an organization you still run. How do some of these ideas apply to you? How, how have you taken these inside your own organization? So here's the interesting question, right? Am I a cobbler's son that has no shoes? <laughs> sometimes I feel like that. Um, is it imposter syndrome where I'm like, hey, I'm surrounded by all these smart people. Like, what do we do? Uh, but I got a very interesting question. Like a, a large investment firm, a, a, I had a VC firm, a PE firm, a large investment house asked me this question about four weeks ago. So it's very timely. They said, look, we can give you $10 million. And you know, how would you invest it? And I said, look, I can't do anything with your $10 million. This wouldn't work, right? There's there, the talent that I need to acquire at scale doesn't exist. And the scale that we're operating at doesn't work this way. However, if you gave me $100 million, I can tell you what I would do. And I would actually transform this business that you and I are in to something different. And I'll, I'll lay it out here in case someone has $100 million to invest. <laughs> a little fun. This is the pitch, right? I think there's a market for focus technology, multimedia um, networks to pop up, right? And so if you, for example, take what we're doing in this business of thought leadership in the tech space and business strategy, and you were to run a 24-7 news channel as the basis of that, where you take, Peter, you get a show, I get a show, we're on maybe like once or twice a week, we run that program, rotate it around the world, we'll get perspectives and data from other places. We could actually go to every technology vendor or sell side and say, look, we want $10 million from you each year. We're going to create the content of the programming. Part of it's advertising, part of it's advisory, part of it's research and advice, part of it's the data stream, part of it's the funnel. You'll get the mid part of the funnel that we can put together. And we can actually build a network. Right? That'd be basically like Bloomberg, you know, Bloomberg West and TV for 24 seven, looking at the business issue, the strategy issue. And let's say like a big issue occurred, you know, colonial pipeline taken off by ransomware. We'd bring like our 400 analysts in and we take three of them and say, let's go debate, right? What's happening? And that would be part of the news cycle. And, and you'd actually take and own the news cycle. You'd actually go deep on programs like, hey, quantum computing, how does it work, right? Or, hey, business strategy on mergers and acquisitions in a SPACless world. Like, how would that look like? And crypto's for fun, right? Crypto's for kids. Kids, right? You put all those programs together. There's a market for that. And the world of analysis, consulting, advisory, media, and entertainment, we'd be put together in this streaming channel where lead gen activities will occur, uh, where advertising will occur as a monetization, and where special programming with membership will occur on a streaming side. That's how it actually apply what we do and actually give us a lot of thought because as writing the book, I'm like, hey, what am I not doing here? Wait, <laughs> should I write the book or leave it as a business plan for a fund? So very interesting. Well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll look to see who uh, takes you up on this uh, on this suggestion and, and offers you the hundred million dollars to to bring that to reality. But a compelling vision, to say the least, Ray. Well, uh, Ray Wong, thank you so much for joining me today. Again, the book is "Everybody Wants to Rule the World: Surviving and Thriving in an Age of Digital Giants." Ray, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for uh, for a great conversation. Peter, thanks so much for having here, and we'd love to have you on our show. Paul and I would love to invite you there. Thank you so much for being an awesome host.
Thank you so much. I appreciate that.